Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. I want to ask you if you have your Bibles today to take them and open them with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelations, as we look today at Revelation chapter 3. We have been going through a sermon series over the past month now entitled, Can You Hear Me Now? Can You Hear Me Now? And no, this is not an encouragement or an endorsement for a cell phone company. That's not what we're about here at Crosslink. We're titling this, Can You Hear Me Now? Because basically, that is the question that Jesus is giving to each of these seven churches. Jesus gives words at times of rebuke and confrontation. At times, he gives words of encouragement and celebration. And he gives a word of invitation for every single one of these churches. And at the end, he closes with this statement. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, he declares the message and then he pauses to consider, have you really heard me? Have you received the invitation? Have you gotten the message? Today we come to the fifth church of Revelation and that is we come to the church at Sardis. And we find something very interesting about them. We find, frankly, that Sardis was a comfortable church a comfortable church. Before we begin to unpack that this morning, I want to start with a simple question, and I want to ask you to respond by show of hands. By show of hands this morning, how many of you like to be comfortable? That means just about every single one of us here today who have a pulse, we enjoy being comfortable, right? In fact, I would guess today that we probably chose our clothes, we probably chose our shoes based upon what is comfortable to us. I would even go a step further today to say even when you got here to this facility, as you were finding a parking space, you probably found the one closest to the door. Why? Because it's a little easier to walk to get in and to get out. It's best for your comfort. Perhaps you even chose your seat in the worship center based upon what you're comfortable with, whether you want to be in the front and completely engaged or in the back because you don't like anybody being behind you. There are many, many decisions that we make every single day based upon our comfort. If we don't think that's true, I would just go on to let you know that when it's a hot day and the air conditioner in the building doesn't work, or when it's a cold day and the heat doesn't work, everybody and their brother lets Pastor Terry know just how uncomfortable they really are. We are a people who value our comfort. We've been blessed to have many of the comforts and conveniences that we have. And while we can talk about that and even laugh about that in a physical sense of our comfort, the truth of the matter is it is very easy for us to get in places of spiritual comfort. And in those places of spiritual comfort, we find ourselves in places where if we are not careful, it can lead to all sorts of danger and devastation in our fellowship with the Lord and with one another. Here, the church at Sardis is approached by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus begins to speak, it is very interesting to note that of all the seven churches, they are the only one that Jesus did not give a single word of approval. They're the only ones that Jesus did not give a single word of praise. He acknowledged some things, but largely what he acknowledged was frankly, they had become very comfortable. The truth of the matter is today, we become spiritually comfort when we value our ease, 
our preferences and our conveniences over the callings, the purposes, and even the glory of God. Our spiritual comfort can lead us and hinder us in so many ways. It can cause us to give what is easy instead of considering what we might give as an offering, as a sacrifice. Our spiritual comfort leads us at times to refuse to share the gospel because we're afraid of loss of relationship. Our spiritual comfort at times can lead us to be content to sit and watch others serve instead of participating in the work that God is calling us to do. Our spiritual comfort can lead us to walk by sight instead of walking by God, uh, walking with God by faith and trusting him. The reality is our spiritual comfort can hinder us in many ways. I remember years ago being brought to that reality of something very important regarding our comfort. It was the fall of 2015, and at that time I was pastoring a church in Christiansburg, Virginia, a few hours away. I had been at that church at that time for 12 and a half years, and in the process of ministry, God had been blessing and working and moving and growing the church. And I'll never forget, around the beginning of October of 2015, there was a family that had been attending our church. And the couple asked if they could meet with me. This couple was a couple I knew in the community because I had coached their son in soccer. And so we began to meet and they began to ask questions about the church. And the purpose of this meeting, I thought, was for them to ask about our beliefs and our leadership structure and our vision and missions and all these different things. But over the course of that one hour meeting, it became loud and clear. They were primarily interested in one thing and one thing only. And that is this. They were asking me about me. They were asking me about my wife. They were asking me about our family. And what they were trying to get to is this. Are you happy here? How long have you been here? How long will you be here? What does the future hold for you and your family? The reason they were asking those questions is because the same 12 and a half years I had been pastoring there in the church that they attended, they had had six different pastors. And at the moment, they were without a pastor once again. That's another letter, another lesson on dysfunctional leadership. But the bottom line in that moment, they largely wanted to know how long we were going to be at that church. And of course, I couldn't give them a guarantee. I couldn't tell them what God had in store for the future, but I will never forget, it's still in this day, I can remember it like it was yesterday. As I'm trying to kind of put any concern to ease, if I'm trying to kind of settle their nerves for a moment, I will never forget making this statement. Have you ever made a statement before where all of a sudden, it seemed like the words that you were, coming, that you were speaking went into slow motion? Like from the moment you began to utter them, it was like everything within you was saying, don't say it, but you couldn't help from saying it. Have you ever been there before? I will never forget the day that I looked at them and said, our family is really comfortable here. Now that doesn't sound like a bad statement, right? We, we were comfortable there. Our family was doing well there and there was a lot to enjoy about life there. But here's the reality. The very moment those words were coming out of my mouth, the Holy Spirit of God was convicting me to the core of my being with this reality. Matthew Kirkland, I never called you to be comfortable. I called you to be obedient. I believe what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to the church at Sardis and what perhaps he's saying to many of our lives, what he's saying to us as a congregation is loud and clear today. Even in the midst of such blessing and such prosperity and such health and such wealth and whatever things, Jesus is looking at the church and he's saying this, I didn't call you to be comfortable, I called you to be obedient. Stand to your feet for the reading of God's word if you're able to do so. Revelation chapter three, six simple but powerful verses of scripture. The Bible says this, 
to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God, that's speaking most likely of the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah 11 verse two, and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these moments together. Through the Holy Spirit of God, would you speak to us today, Father? Would you convict us where it's needed? Would you counsel us where it's needed? Would you encourage us where it's needed? May it all be for your glory and your honor. Wake us up and stir us anew and afresh to you and to the works that you've called us to do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. This morning, I wanna preach to you on the subject, the comfortable church, the comfortable church. This comfortable church existed in one of the wealthiest cities in all of the ancient world, the great city of Sardis. Sardis was one of the richest and most powerful cities of the ancient world. In fact, 700 years before the very writing of these words in Revelation chapter three, we understand historically today that Sardis was a major commercial and cultural center. In fact, we know today that Sardis had a river where there was discovered an enormous amount of gold. Even Greek mythology today gives us all sorts of theories and ideas of where this gold came from, but Sardis was extremely wealthy because of the content of gold in one of their rivers. Not only were they wealthy because of their gold, but they were also wealthy because they had begun to manufacture these luxurious white garments. All throughout the ancient world, if you had great wealth, you desired one of these white garments. And so Sardis had gold and they had this incredible, incredible opportunity to manufacture these white garments. In addition to that, Sardis sat right as the hub of five major ancient trade routes. In other words, all the wealth of the ancient world basically had a channel through old Sardis. So here's a city that was wealthy. Here's a city that was thriving. Here's a city that literally had connections to the entire world. Not only that, but Sardis was geographically positioned in such a way that they had a natural defense built about them. Sardis largely existed on a high plateau, which made them almost impossible for an enemy to defeat. In fact, the Acropolis of the city was 1,500 feet above the main roads, which meant the city was largely secure, wealthy, and compared to everyone else in the region, life at Sardis was easy. They didn't have to work hard for their wealth. They didn't have to work hard to defend their city. They didn't have to work hard for all the blessings they had. Literally, life became very easy for them, and in their ease, frankly, they became comfortable. And in their comfort, they had a false sense of security that they would always be this way. They would always be blessed. They would always be wealthy, that everything would be okay. And sadly, as we've seen in many of these other churches, as we've seen in Revelations, 
we find that the, the attitude, if you will, of the culture also began to influence the attitude and the mindset of those within the church. As the city was wealthy, the church was wealthy. As life was easy in the city, life was easy in the church. As the people were greatly blessed, the church was greatly blessed. And there in that culture and environment, the people became very, very comfortable. But I'm reminded, comfort is not always our best friend. Comfort is never meant to be our focus when we are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see four things that Jesus says in the context of this message to the church that should cause us to pause, cause us to learn, but more so cause us to examine our own lives. Are we comfortable? And if so, what is Jesus saying to us today? Four things I want you to see. Number one, I want you to see the prestige of the church. This is a body of believers who were very focused on their name. They were focused on their status. They were focused on their wealth. They, they were focused on their reputation. It was very important to them that they be recognized in such a way that people would affirm them, approve them, and even applaud them. But Jesus, remember, is the one who walks among the seven, uh, walks among the golden lampstands. He's walking among the church. Jesus is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees and knows all things. So he does with them what he does with all the other churches. He begins with these two words, I know. And as he speaks of them, he acknowledges two things. First off, he acknowledges their activity. Jesus says loud and clear in this verse of scripture, verse one, I know your deeds. Now, this does not mean that Jesus approved of their deeds. It does not mean that he accepted their deeds. It does not even mean that he affirmed their deeds. All he's doing in this moment is acknowledging their deeds. The word for deeds here means their general activity. It's like Jesus is looking at them and saying, listen, I know that you're not lazy. I know that you're not just sitting around doing nothing. No, actually, you're doing things. You've got programs in the church and you've got ministries in the church and you're, you're serving some people along the way and you're doing some things along the way. You're not just sitting around lazy and complacent doing nothing. No, you're actually busy to some extent about the work that you've been given to do. But the fact that Jesus acknowledged their deeds without affirming or approving their deeds tells us something interesting. It reveals to us that it is not enough to serve the Lord. You say, well, I didn't hear that right. It's not enough to serve the Lord. What do you mean by that, pastor? Jesus is not only interested in the fact that he's given us gifts to serve him and he's given us opportunities to serve him and he's called us to serve him. He is interested in the heart behind our service. In other words, there at Sardis, they were active and there were things going on and there were programs and there were ministries. There were people doing things, but Jesus knew that the heart of the problem was the problem of their heart. They were going through the motions. These were mundane activities. They're just doing what they've all they've done. They're just checking the box off. They're just making sure they get it done. But their heart wasn't really in it. The apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter six about our serving of the Lord. He reminds us that we're to serve the Lord. Listen to this. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Listen to this. Doing the will of God from what? From the heart. 
with goodwill render services to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Parents, let me ask you a question. Have you ever given your child a chore or a task to get done? I imagine every one of his parents have asked our child to do something along the way. Parents, how quickly can you tell whether they're doing it because they have to or doing it because they want to? Kids, you may think you have your parents full, but I'm telling you today that your parents see and they know whether your heart is in it or not. Jesus looks at the church that's going through these activities and there's ministries and they're serving. He said, listen, I am looking and I know what you're doing is just outward, if you will, going through the motions, lip service. Your heart is not really in it. And so he acknowledged their activity. Secondly, he acknowledged their appearance. Look at verse one. I know your deeds and key statement that you have a name that you are alive. This was a church that was concerned about their name. They were concerned about their outward appearance. They were concerned about their reputation. They were concerned about their brand. They were concerned about how many followers they had on social media. Now that didn't exist at the time, but you get the picture. They were concerned. And, and, the, and the Bible tells us, Jesus said, you have a name that you're alive. People in the community looked at their programs and all their activities and the people in the community said, wow, they're alive. And the church, instead of looking to Jesus for his assessment, instead of looking to Jesus for his instruction, they found their identity and what other people said about them. We're, we're, we must be alive. Look at all these different things going on. I think about that and I'm reminded years ago going to a, a church in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, literally I know Alabama, I-N-O. It's an original way to spell I know, right? I remember going to I know Alabama to I know Baptist Church as my brother was leading worship at this church and I remember driving in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I mean 20, 30 miles away from any sign of civilization. And, and all of a sudden we pass this final, you know, cow pasture and all of a sudden there's this huge worship center at I Know Baptist Church. I walk inside and there's like a worship center that seats 3,000 in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there are more like 3,000 cows nearby than there are 3,000 people, but I'll never get walking through and seeing the bulletin from last Sunday and their slogan that said this, the church that's alive is worth the drive. They wanted you to know they're alive and they're worth driving to to be there. So this church had a name that they were alive. Now, now, why do they have that? Some scholars would say they believe they were alive because of their wealth, because of their geographical location, because of their manufacturing, because of their gold. This was without question the wealthiest of all the seven churches represented in Revelation. They were known for their ornate architecture, the grandiose nature of their gathering spaces. I mean, it was a beautiful and incredible place to be. And they found comfort. We're, surely we're alive. Look how wealthy we are. Some would suggest to us that they had a name they were alive because of their rich history. Verse three tells us that in the past, they had received some incredible truths, some incredible teachings. They likely had God-fearing pastors that were faithfully preaching them the truths of God. And so as a result of that, they had received wonderful truths. And as a result of that, the church, they're looking back. Look at all the truths we've learned. Look at all the truths that we'd heard. Look at what God's done in the past. They feel like they're alive because of that. They, they likely feel that they're alive because their doctrine is so right. In fact, they're, they're one of a few churches in Revelation that did not get a single rebuke for their false teaching. Says something about it. They had all this outward activity that they were alive. They were well-founded, well-funded, and even well-favored. 
This was their prestige. But I want to remind us of something. Even though they found great confidence in the outward appearance, what other people said about them, how other people saw them, I want to remind us of something. You can put on an outward appearance. We can all put on a show. We can all find our confidence in what other people think of us. But God is not impressed with the outward appearance. Nor is he deceived by it. God at all times, even now, is looking at the heart. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Brings a question, doesn't it? Are we more focused on our reputation or on the reality of our standing before God? The church at Sardis had a very difficult lesson that they needed to learn, which brings us to the problem within the church. They had a name, verse one. You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Think of that for just a moment. Their reputation was great. Their confidence in themselves was great. Their past history was great. Their wealth was great. Their ongoing activities were great. But Jesus says, but you're dead. They had a name they were alive, which literally in the Greek means they had a name that they were lively. A name that they were lively for just a moment. I want to kind of question you for a second. Have you ever been in a dead church before? I wonder what we, how we would describe a dead church. Maybe we'd describe a dead church as a place that has music that's not very upbeat and exciting. Slow and dreary, so to speak. Maybe we'd look at a pastor that's not passionate or excited and we would say, man, that guy seems to be dead. Or maybe we'd look at people that are not very expressive or outgoing and we would conclude that it's dead. But could it be that the liveliness of a church is not measured by the style of music, the size of the crowd, the volume of the sound system, the nature of the technology, or even the personality of the preacher? If we define our liveliness by these things, then we might be as equally deceived as the people of Sardis. Let me illustrate that for just a moment. Years ago when I was at Liberty, I'll never forget God having to teach me something about this. We were getting ready for Spiritual Emphasis Week where we were having a, a guest preacher come and every single night we were having worship services and he was preaching God's word and it was always an exciting time of year, an exciting time of the semester. And I'll never forget being excited for this and this preacher came and I won't say his name because he's still preaching today and, and I remember as he stood to preach, just to be honest with you, Within about five minutes, I was looking around to see how other people were responding because in my heart, I was sitting there thinking, this guy's got to be the worst preacher I've ever heard in my life. I mean, seriously. He was completely monotone. There was no excitement, no passion. It seemed to be very little conviction at all. I mean, just completely monotone. And then just to be honest with you, his points were here and there and everywhere and they weren't even alliterated. I mean, I sat, seriously, I sat there thinking like, man, where in the world did we get this guy? I mean, we're at Liberty University. Couldn't we find a better preacher for a spiritual living this week? And I sat there 
as a second year sophomore, like I was the expert in the room knowing exactly what the school needed, right? Who is this guy? I will never forget that night when his message came to a close and he asked people to bow in prayer without even giving instruction or even extending the invitation. As my eyes are closed in prayer, I remember the sound of plastic hitting all around the building. As people were in these seats, they would stand up and the, back of the, the bottom of the seat would hit the back of the seat. And I watched literally as hundreds of students walked down that aisle and walked down to that altar and they were so broken before God that many of them were literally falling on their face prostrate before God. And in my heart and heart, I sat there thinking, what? This guy was horrible. But what God was doing in my life in that moment and what God was having to show me that night was simply this. What was wrong that night was not the style of the preacher. What was wrong was the condition of my own heart. And when those series of services ended, every single morning for the rest of that semester, there were students that were gathering together in that building at 6.30 in the morning and people were praying and they were pouring their heart out to God and God was bringing a revival on that campus. I thought the guy was crazy or spiritually just not lively enough. But what God was having to teach me was that the evidence of liveliness is not found in our outward appearance or in our style, but in the movement of the Holy Spirit of God to stir and awaken and produce life in his people. Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 to 28, Jesus tells us the evidence of those who are spiritually dead as he looks at the Pharisees. And largely, here's what he's saying. On the outside, you appear beautiful. On the outside, you look religious. On the outside, you look good. But listen to what he says. On the inside, they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There's a disconnect between your outward appearance and the truth of where you stand before God. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus takes it a step further as he looks at the religious workers who stand before God in judgment. And here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter to the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They had an outward appearance. They had an outward activity. They were even prophesying. They were even seeing miracles and they found confidence and they found security in the way that they appeared on the outside. But Jesus looked at the inside and said, depart from me for I never knew you. Jesus even tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse five, that in the last days, there will be many who have an outward form of godliness, although they have denied its power, which means they have an outward shape and an outward appearance, but they don't have a real relationship, a life that has been transformed from the inside out. Here's my question for you today. Are you spiritually alive? As a pastor, I go to church. So did they. I serve the Lord. So did they. 
I've seen God do miracles. I felt so close. So did they. Here's the reality. Have you repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? You can go to church every day of your life, but that will not save you. We are saved only by the power of God through salvation as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That reality led British pastor Alan Redpath as he would go to the churches of England, even as he would address the churches, they, they often found their comfort in the size of their cathedrals, in the amounts of their budgets, and the grandiose nature of all that they had. But Alan Redpath would go to those churches and here's how he would ask them to assess whether or not they were truly alive or dead. Here's what he would ask. He would say, pastors, what is happening in your church that cannot be explained merely in human terms? In other words, what is happening that only God can do? What is happening that only the Holy Spirit of God can transform and speak life into? Scottish pastor Eric Alexander rightly concluded it this way. Spiritual liveliness has nothing to do with what human beings can create by themselves. His point is that the evidence of life comes only through the Lord of life, Jesus Christ. Third thing I want you to see this morning is the priority of the church. So what should happen to the church that has a reputation that it's alive but spiritually is actually dead? What should happen in the life of a professing believer who has a name that they are alive but spiritually they are as comfortable and cold as can be? Jesus tells us in verses two and three, Here's the word of instruction. Wake up. The, the tone here in this instruction, wake up, is the tone that you might use with your teenage child that's hit the snooze button a hundred times, okay, parents? Wake up. You're, you're missing it. You're gonna be late. The opportunity is now. Wait, wake up, get up. Now's the time. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't be complacent. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be ignorant of what's going on. Don't be arrogant and think it doesn't matter to you. Now's the time to wake up. Literally what he's saying is, it's time to wake up. It's time to open your eyes. It's time to get up. It's time to be alert to what's going on around you. It's time to be attentive to what the Holy Spirit of God is saying and doing in the moment. Many of us in the context of the church have been so spiritually lulled to sleep by our comforts that we've lost sight with how far off track we've actually gotten. Let me, let me illustrate it for just, just a moment. Several years ago, I started having these crazy random dizzy spells. Ended up diagnosing me with positional vertigo, which is really not the biggest deal in the world, but it was scary at the time. And I remember at that time going to my family doctor. I remember going to a neurologist. I remember going through a series of scans. And then finally, they sent me to a... Uh, an audiologist who was also a motion specialist. Very, very weird, I know, but the bottom line is, I went to see this doctor and because he was convinced that whatever was going on with me was all because of my inner ear. And so I remember walking to the doctor's office and he said, now listen, I want you to know, you're not gonna like me at the end of this meeting. You're probably gonna get sick along the way, but my goal is basically to manipulate your system until I can identify the exact cause of your issue. That'll just bless you right there. That's exciting, you know, like. You love when a doctor says, you're gonna hate me in a few minutes, okay? 
But I will never forget walking into that office, walking into that, 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 that room. He had me stand up. He had me face a specific spot on the wall. He said, now I want you to close your eyes. And he said, basically, I want you to obey every one of my commands. Before you close your eyes, I want you to focus on this chart in front of you. Keep your eyes there. Keep your focus there. Make sure you know exactly where you're. I said, okay, I did. He had me close my eyes and then he led me through all these crazy instructions with my hands and my feet. And then he, he had me walk in place. And I remember doing all this with my eyes because I could not open my eyes. And at the very end, he said, before you open your eyes, I want to ask you a question. What do you think you're going to see when you open your eyes? Well, to be honest, every instruction he had given me never had me turn around and think. Every time I was facing this map, this chart on the wall, so I was focused there. He said, what are you going to see? I said, I'm going to see the chart. Are you sure of that? Yes, I'm sure of it. You know you're facing the right direction. Absolutely, doctor. I know exactly where I'm facing. And I remember in that moment, I had been walking, I had been moving. When I finally opened my eyes, I was so convinced I was heading the right direction with the right focus. When I opened my eyes, you know where I was at? I was facing the opposite corner from where the doctor had started. You know what that means? It means I look like an idiot. That's what it means, okay? <laughs> That's exactly what it means. You know what it also means? When my eyes were closed and my inner ear was messed up, I was so far off course and I didn't even realize it. Spiritually speaking, there are many of us in the church today because we still know the truth, because we still have a head knowledge. We think we're walking for the Lord Jesus Christ, but because of compromise, because of spiritual complacency, because of coldness in our hearts, we don't even realize that Jesus is still there and we have shifted our focus and we're looking the opposite and going the opposite direction. Jesus says, wake up. It's time to open your eyes and see where you're really at. In waking up, he then tells us four ways to do that. Number one, we must re recommit ourselves to serving the Lord. Verse two, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now remember, they've already been serving. They've already been doing, but they haven't been doing it with a heart of love for the Lord or a heart of love for his church. They've just been going through the motions. So when Jesus says recommit to serve the Lord, he's saying, listen, you still got an opportunity. You can still serve me. Your deeds are not yet completed. Get busy about the work I've given you to do, but do it this time with a heart of love for me and for others. Number two, remember what the Lord has done. Verse three, remember what you have received and heard. Jesus is saying, listen, remember those teachings that you've heard. Remember that truth I have taught you. Remember the gospel that set you free. Remember that. Remember that love that you once had for me. Remember when that relationship was new and fresh and exciting. Remember how you were hungry to know God's word, hungry to fellowship with other believers, to come together as the body of Christ. Remember what it was like when you shared the good news with passion. Remember those things. Sometimes people say, well, you can't go back. No, no. But sometimes you have to go back at least in your mind to remember so that you can go forward. It's like the couple that's been married for years and somehow in the process of their relationship, their affection grows cold. Sometimes it's extremely beneficial to go back and remember those early days. Remember when you used to write those love letters. 
Remember when you went before the, the church and before that altar and before God and made that covenant with one another. Remember that passion that was once there. Remember that time when that relationship was so new and so fresh and you would do anything for that. Get back to that is what he's saying. Remember what the Lord has done. Renew, number three, your devotion to the word of God. Verse three, remember what you've received and heard and keep it, keep it. Take God's word in, embrace it. The idea of keeping it is protecting it. You're, you're thinking on it, you're meditating on it. You're finding practical ways to practice what God has shown you to do. Repent. It is interesting to me that once again, we see this common word of instruction, repent. That word repent, as we've seen numerous times already in the series, it literally means a change of mind, a change of course, a change of action. It means that we were living in our sin, we were living in our complacency, we were living in our selfishness, but now we acknowledge our sin, we confess it to God, we turn from our sin, and we turn from, to move forward. We turn to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and repent. I find it interesting. It's easy for us to see how the church at Thyatira would need to repent. After all, they were living in all sorts of sexual sin. Surely they needed to repent. I find it interesting that the church at Pergamum needed to repent. After all, they were accepting false doctrine and false teaching and they were turning to things that were leading people away from the gospel. They needed to repent. But just as they needed to repent, the church that had gotten busy of going through the motions losing heart and motive for why they were doing what they're doing, they too needed to repent. In other words, those who are negligent in loving Jesus and serving him need to repent as equally as the person who's walking out of here and living like the devil the rest of the week. We must repent. Final thing I want you to see is the promise to the church. To those who repent, there is forgiveness. To those who repent, there is grace and there is restoration. To those who repent, Jesus gives an incredible word of promise. Notice verse four. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Listen to this. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. What a word of promise from Jesus. The people in Sardis were very familiar with white luxurious garments because they made them. They manufactured them. They sent them all throughout the ancient world. It was a source of wealth for them. Something interesting about the clothes in this world, they don't last forever. They fade, or for the rest of us, they don't fit anymore, okay? They don't last forever. They fade and they're stained and they decay and they eventually fall apart. But here's what Jesus says. But to those who turn to me, I offer a white garment. I offer a clothing. I offer a robe, so to speak, that will never fade that will never decay, that will never be stained. And what is this clothing? It is literally Jesus himself. Galatians 3 says it this way, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, listen to this, 
have clothed yourselves with who? Christ. It means all who believe in Jesus, all who turn from their sin and turn to the Savior, we're not only forgiven, we're not only cleansed, we're literally clothed and covered in the very righteousness of Christ. Oh, and by the way, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. In other words, all who trust in Jesus as Lord, their names are preserved and protected in the Lamb's book of life. All who believe in Jesus, all who know him as Lord and Savior. First John says it this way, he who has the Son has the life. Hopes to have the life. Maybe has the life. No, no, he has eternal life. But he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus' promise is loud and clear. All who repent and turn to me, I forgive, I cleanse, I cover, and I protect. And one day when this whole world is over, you will be with the Lord Jesus for all of eternity. Last week, as we were closing the service, there was a young person that came up to me and asked me the question, well, pastor, whatever happened to these old churches? Simple question. It's a great question, actually. It's made, my, made me think through that context as we've wrapped up this letter today. So whatever happened to the church at Sardis? I mean, Jesus warned them, if you don't wake up, I'm coming like a thief. When you don't expect it, when you don't anticipate it, I'm gonna come suddenly, judgment's gonna come if you don't repent. Truth is, we're not entirely sure whatever happened to that church. But I do find it very interesting. In the ancient world, in Asia Minor, there was no church that was more strategically placed to effectively fulfill the Great Commission and take the gospel to the ends of the earth than was the church at Sardis. But today, that city of Sardis is in modern day Turkey. And while there are believers in Turkey, and God is still at work in portions and areas of Turkey, to this very day, it remains one of the darkest places in the globe. I find it interesting that Jesus looked at the church and called them to repent, but he also made it clear that the opportunity was brief. You get the impression Jesus is saying, don't miss the opportunity. I don't know how they responded, but I do find it very interesting that today there's not a very bright light shining for Jesus in that region. I think it could be fairly stated that they missed their opportunity. But can I say to us here today, Crossland Community Church, they might have missed their opportunity, but you don't have to miss yours. God is working and he's moving and he's speaking and he's calling us to get beyond the surfacy nonsense to really examine our lives. Do we truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we truly living our life for his glory and honor? Is our motive and service truly because we love him? Or is there something else that God's exposing today?
all over the building. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for speaking to our lives. Father, I confess that we all need you to speak into our lives and yet at the something. So God, I pray even now that you would open our eyes to see what you'd have us to see. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. And I pray that we would respond with repentance. God, I pray that none of us here today would miss our opportunity. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any questions about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.